and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Revelation chapter 11 is where we're at this morning. So if you want to pull your handout out, maybe open your Bible, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, There's Bibles in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're using a phone, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Um, And uh, where we're at in the book of Revelation is uh, we've been going through these judgments. And so there have been a series of seal judgments where uh, Jesus opens a seven-sealed scroll and announces judgments on the earth. And uh, then we made our way into what are called the trumpet judgments. And so we've seen those six trumpets uh, judgments take place. Um, Something that actually Jesus talked about happening in in the Gospels taking place. And then... uh, we're kind of in an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet being blown. And so also on your handout there is you see the scenes that happen within the book of Revelation. It sort of bounces between John seeing something on earth and John seeing something in heaven and back and forth throughout the book. Uh, the last chapter we were in, uh, we saw a mighty angel and a small scroll and John was in heaven and he's given this small scroll and he's told to eat it. And the idea is that he's, he's supposed to ruminate on what God is doing, to take in the judgment that is coming at the end of time. And now we're going to move from that scene in heaven to a scene on earth. And so what we have here is the two witnesses. And so a lot of speculation about who these people are. We'll get into it a little bit more. Um, But uh, the message here is that uh, God's message has been given and rejected over and over again throughout human history. Um, You may have done it at in your life. I'm sure I did, uh, right? We've heard God's message, and then there was a period of time in our life where we rejected God's message. Maybe you're still doing that today. I, I, hope, I hope that you will hear God's grace for you this morning, his kindness, and his care for you through what Jesus Christ has done this morning. If you're in a place where you're still rejecting God's message, I want you to hear God has something for you, okay? Um, but the other thing that happens is God sends a messenger. Uh, that message is delivered. It's rejected by the people, and then the message and the messenger get vindicated. They get to be proved, they prove to be correct and right. Okay. We saw this in Jesus's ministry. We've seen this uh, throughout different people in the, in the church history and as in the Bible as well. God's message is brought through a witness. That message is often very much rejected by the people. That witness is then vindicated and shown to be right. And so that's, what's going to happen in this passage. As we've gone through the book of Revelation, one of the things that I've shared with you is that while this may seem like a lot of new information, it's actually a lot of old information that's giving clarification, okay? And so the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the New Testament letters, they all share about what's going to happen in the end times, and what the book of Revelation does is add information to what we've already been told. And so on your handout, Psalm 135, it says, Lord, your name endures forever. Your reputation, Lord, through all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are of silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Indeed, there is no breath in their mouths. Those who make them are just like them, as are all those who trust 
in them. And so what we learn in the scriptures over and over again is that there is a message of life and that God offers that message of life. And that message of life is, is given to those and there are many who receive it and they living in God's compassion. They're living in God's grace. Uh, maybe not experiencing uh, the fulfillment of what they would hope in this life because in this life there's trials and tribulations and difficulties. Maybe we go through really hard stuff. Uh, but in the end, they're, they're vindicated. They're lifted up into a place of glory. Not glory that's theirs, but God sharing their, his glory with them. But then he says the idols of the nation, they're, they're silver and gold, they're made with human hands. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear. There's no breath in their mouths. He's saying that when we put our faith and our trust in something other than God, there's no life there. There may be the illusion of life, but there's no genuine life in trusting anything other than God. He's the only source of life. He's the only one who can give us life. And so when we turn to something else, it, it doesn't actually bring life. And then he goes, he says, those who make those idols are lifeless, and so is anyone who trusts in them. So any, anyone who trusts in gold, silver, or the things that we can make with our human hands to give us hope or security or secure our future or, or, or give us life, there's actually not any true life in that. There's only true life found in God. And so that's what he's drawing out in this. And so as we get into this passage here in Revelation, what the two witnesses are going to do is they're going to be proclaiming a message very similar to that. They're going to stand around the people that are living in their time and say, you guys are trusting things that don't give you life. If you want to have life, you have to repent from trusting in those things or in yourself and turn and fix your eyes to God and trust that he is your source of life. You can only find life in God and through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Any other, anything else that you would turn to, it's just an illusion, okay? And so they're going to share a message very similar to that. Um, let me pray, and then we'll read these passages, this passage together. So, Father, we are, we are thankful that not only you are the source of life, but that you give life to us. Um, not only are you the one who has the ability to forgive us of our sins, but you have done it. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your great work in our lives, your great work in human history. Uh, we thank you that in the end, uh, you will return and, and sin and death and evil will be done away with. And we look forward to that. But in the meantime, we understand that you have a mission for your church and that is to proclaim what your son Jesus has done to secure salvation and life for all who trust in him. God, I pray that as, as Christians, we would be growing in this message of grace and uh, taking in who you are, being still before you in awe of who you are, that, that our minds and our hearts would be changed by uh, your grace and your character. Um, and that as we experience transformation, we would then leave to go into action. Uh, God, those who are here this morning and they, they haven't trusted you, I pray that they would see how much you care for them. I pray that they would see their need uh, that they would give up on uh, trying to secure life without you, but instead that they would bend the knee to the God of the universe and trust you, allow you to give them life. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So after he takes in this scroll, as we saw in chapter 10, and he's encouraged to consider what God is going to do, it says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Then... I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 
months. So John is given a reed or a measuring rod and he's told to measure the temple and count the people who are in it, but to not pay attention to the outer court where the Gentile people would worship. Uh, there's a drawing of the, uh, the, the temple layout on your handout there. And so there's an inner sanctuary and then a holy of holies within that inner sanctuary. And that was a place where the, the, those who had converted to Judaism would go and worship God. And then there was an outer court uh, that was for people that were searching for God, but maybe didn't have Jewish background. They hadn't completed uh, the, the steps necessary to be a part of the Jewish faith. And what he's sharing here is that during the time of the Great Tribulation, uh, that that outer court is going to be trampled under by the Gentile people for, he says, 42 months, which is three and a half years. Now, a little temple history, the first temple was built by Solomon, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple, after their time in captivity, the Jewish people come back, and a man named Zerubbabel builds the second temple. That second temple is then or added onto by Herod, and then destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And then after that temple, the second temple is destroyed in 70 AD, it's never been rebuilt. In fact, the Romans built a temple to Jupiter there, and then uh, Muslim nations came in later and conquered it, and now the Dome of the Rock sits there. So the Jewish temple has never been rebuilt. The Jewish people were dispersed and moved all over the, uh, the world for a long time. And then in 1940, now I'm not remembering off the top of my head, um, eight, 48, they came back to the nation and they were then a nation once again, but they still have not rebuilt the temple. And so uh, what you have in G before Jesus's first coming, there were two temples. There's the, the temple that Solomon built and the temple that Zerubbabel built and Herod the Great added onto. Before Jesus's second coming, there's two more temples. There's this one that uh, John would be looking at that a, a group of Jewish people will build before the great tribulation period. And then there's actually another temple that Ezekiel describes, the millennial temple in Ezekiel chapter 40 and 42. And so that's kind of what you have uh, as far as the temples are concerned. Uh, I'm giving you that background. The point behind this, the emphasis for John, is the separation of the holy place and the holy of holies from the outer court. So he's saying that there's this Gentile oppression on the Jewish people is going to remain during the great tribulation. Uh, 42 months is three and a half years. We look at, uh, there's different ways to read the book of Revelation. We're reading it, looking at it as future events. So that we're, when, when uh, before Jesus' return, he comes and he raptures the church, he takes the church off of the earth, and then he's working through the nation of Israel again, through 144,000 Jewish witnesses, the two witnesses we're going to read about here, and God is offering a message of repentance to the world during that point in time. The first three and a half years are marked by peace under the Antichrist, and then the second three and a half years are well, all, where all this tribulation and difficulty takes place, and we understand that what John is seeing is a temple that would exist during the second half of the great tribulation. Okay, And so, uh, again, there's other ways to look at this. If you're here this morning and you go, I don't read the book of Revelation as future. I see it as something that took place historically. The church fathers actually uh, had this happen. And it was actually when the Muslims took Constantinople that the book of Revelation stopped. That's, that's one view. Uh, another view is that it's cyclical throughout human history. And so these are things that we see all throughout the church age. And so there's times where God will rise up witnesses and they'll share a message of repentance to the culture. The culture will reject it and the witnesses, those witnesses would then be martyred and then God would vindicate them in the final resurrection. That's another view you could take on this passage. The one that I'm going to share with you is the one where we're looking at it as future. It's a little more literal when you read it. Not totally literal because there's elements where John is clearly being figurative. Um, but just if you have a different view, that's all right. But, but hang with me on looking at it in this future way. 
And so that's what John is told here. He says the, the emphasis here is there's going to be a temple during the second half of the tribulation. The Jewish people will have uh, good control over the inner sanctuary, but the outer court is still going to experience um, apostasy. It's still going to experience bad teaching and bad doctrine. And so, what, what, is, what does that city need? It needs a couple of witnesses. And in verse 3, it says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days. That's again, three and a half years, dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth being something that's it's a ministry of repentance. He's going, these two will go and they will say, you need to repent. You need to change the way that you live. You need to change your approach to God. These things need to take place. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. And so as you listen to what these two guys are doing, it sounds a lot like Elijah. If you know your Old Testament, Elijah, there was a period where he stopped the rain from falling. And if you know the, your Old Testament, you know Moses, he actually turned the Nile into blood. And so uh, this sounds a lot like the ministries that Elijah and Moses had in the Old Testament. It also sounds a lot like um, the, the ministry that Zerubbabel and Joshua had because uh, the, the, in verse 4 where it talks about the, uh, the olive trees and the lampstands, when the Jewish people read the Old Testament, they looked at that as uh, the people that came and set up the nation of, of, uh, of Israel, Joshua and Zerubbabel doing that. And so uh, there's different ways to kind of look at who these people are. Some people actually look at them and they say, this sounds a lot like Elijah and possibly Enoch. Enoch was a guy that he lived and God raptured him. He caught him up. He didn't experience physical, physical death. Elijah experienced the same thing. And so people say, well, because those two guys didn't experience physical death, maybe that's them coming back to have this ministry. Um, I think the best way to look at them is they kind of sound like all four, but we don't know who they are. Um, and I think there's good reason for them to remain unnamed, but uh, I think that's the best way to look at them. It kind of sounds like all four, but we're not sure who they are as of yet. We do know what they receive. They receive divine appointment from God. He says they're going to be my witnesses and they're going to testify about God. Uh, they're going to be my witnesses. They're going to prophesy for 1260 days. They're going to speak for an appointed length of time. Uh, they're going to do their job within their generation to offer this message of repentance. Uh, there, again, it's going to be a message of repentance, and they're going to have offensive powers, fire that comes forth from their mouth. Probably not literal, probably more like they're going to speak in a fiery way that causes people to go, whoa, I should come to an end of myself. Um, I, should, I should not experience the second death, but instead I'm going to experience the death that Jesus had for me on the cross, and I'm going to identify with his death, and I'm going to be raised to newness of life. And so that's probably more in line with what they're doing here, not actually killing people with fire that comes from their mouth, but speaking in a fiery way that causes people to come to an end of themselves. Uh, they're given miraculous powers. They have supernatural capabilities that lead, uh, that are there because of the people's lack of repentance. Um, and then they're going to be killed here in a minute spoiler, and uh, they're going to be resurrected, the breath of life from God. And what's interesting is to look at their, their ministry and to recognize that if you are a follower of Jesus, these things are also true of you. God has called you to be his witnesses. He's called us to be his witnesses. He's, he's given us a, t a period of time 
Each of us should do our job within our generation to proclaim the message of the gospel and invite people to know Jesus Christ through repentance and trusting him. We all have a period of time that we should do this for. Um, and, and then uh, this message of repentance. We also understand that we are divinely equipped. Uh, when when uh, Paul talks about spiritual armor within the book of uh, Ephesians, he says that we have the sword of the spirit and that it's an offensive weapon and it's the word of God. And so God has actually given us his word, his divine language, his divine story to share with people so that it could cut through their old way of life and they could come to faith and repentance in Jesus. You have to understand that if you're a Christian, this ministry sounds a lot like what we should be doing as the church. We're to be as witnesses. We have an appointed period of time. We're proclaiming uh, uh, repentance. We have the word of God as divinely equipped power to speak this message. We also have supernatural capabilities. Do you know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God lives inside of you and that you're a partaker of the divine nature, that you've been transformed and in some way or connection, God actually lives inside of us and transforms who we are. His divine power, it's, it's in us. We've become temples of the living God so that we can speak with authority. And we have resurrection life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, who you were in Adam as a sinner died with Jesus on the cross. And he was, that person was buried with Jesus in, in the tomb. And you were raised from life to death in Jesus' resurrection. Uh, you've been resurrected. You're new. You're a new creation. And so it's pretty interesting. You look at this and you go, this is actually what God calls the church to do. These two guys are going to do this in a very special and powerful way during the tribulation, but God has, a, has this for all of us. At the end of the service, we're going to take communion together, and uh, communion is this time where we, we slow down, and you kind of, you get still, and you, you talk to God, and you say, God, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with? You know, Spirit of God, if, I, if there's something in my life that needs to... Just, just bring that to mind and then I want to repent of it and I want, to, I want to move forward in your strength. And the other thing that communion is, is it's this really cool time where we recognize God's with us all the time. He is our ever-present help in time of need. But communion, there's these symbols where Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. It's a special time where he says, I am with you. Now, you've different views on what the bread and the juice are, but at the very least, we recognize it's very powerful symbols for us to go, God is with us. We can commune with him. We can be in relationship with him. But the other thing I want you to hear is that time of stillness and that time of recognizing areas of our life that maybe need to be dealt with. And it should bring transformation from the inside out. But transformation should always lead to action. And so when we get to that point, we take communion together, something that's for believers, and we want to say, this is true. Jesus has accomplished this. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. I have a new relationship with God because of the blood of the new covenant. I've been transformed and God has made me someone new. And because of that, because of my time of stillness and remembering what God has done, this is the ministry I should have. I should be his witness. I should speak his message to my generation. I should let them know they need, people need to repent and find life in Christ. I should know that I have divine power through God's word and his spirit living inside of me. Like that's, that's what we're here for. 
These guys are going to do that for this three and a half period, three and a half year period. And then it says, when they finish their testimony in verse seven, the beast that comes out of the abyss. Now, if you haven't been with us, that's chapter nine, verses one and two. And we understand that to be the Antichrist will make war on them, conquer them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt. When you hear Sodom and Egypt, you think of immorality and rejection of God finding false gods, so immorality and believing in false gods. That's what Sodom and Egypt are there to remind us of. Where also the Lord was crucified. So he's saying that Jerusalem at this point in time will look a lot like immorality of Sodom and false deities of Egypt. Okay, saying that's what Jerusalem is like at this point in time. Verse nine, and some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat. That means to rejoice and be glad over their corpses and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented. That means to torture or harass those who live on the earth. Now, some pretty interesting observations there. One is that the immorality of Sodom and the false deities of Egypt, they've gone nowhere in human history. They're still around us, okay? We deal with them today. Um, and I don't care what city you live in, it's there. Uh, the other thing is that those who see these dead bodies, they, they rejoice and they celebrate, send gifts to one another because they said, here are these two people that tormented us. They, they harassed us with God's word. They're dead. We didn't want God's message. We don't want God's messengers. And we're celebrating that that has been stomped out. Okay? That, that's, wow. I think the other thing is if you go, okay, well, my ministry as a believer in Jesus Christ is to be a witness, to prophesy, to, to share the message of repentance. And, and if I do this, there's going to be those who will be glad when I'm quiet. The other part of it is if I do this, people are going to receive it as like harassment. There's the potential that when you share the gospel with somebody uh, and you share, because uh, the gospel is kind of harassing. Like it looks us in the eye and says, you're broken, sinful, and have no chance. You, you, you don't have what it takes to get right with God. Even if you tried your very hardest, you're still a broken sinner. You need someone to die for you to deal with the consequences of your sin. You need to end your rebellion and you need to be made new. And a lot of times when people hear that, they go, well, no, I don't want anything to do with that. The other thing that we could do with it is you go, maybe you're right. Maybe I am broken. Maybe I am sinful. Maybe I do rebel against God and maybe I'm not whole. So I'll try really hard. Let me give this the college try. And, you know, I'm going to do my very best to not be sinful. I'm going to do my very best to not be rebellious. I'm going to try my hardest to be whole as a person. And you go, well, that's not going to work either. And so the gospel, it, it does sort of harass us. It sort of makes us bristle. Because you go, I'm broken and I can't fix it. I'm a rebel and I deserve death. I, I'm incomplete without God and I can't make myself be complete. That's... A hard message. But the flip side of that message is that when Jesus died on our behalf, he died as a sinner, as a rebel, and when he rose from the dead, he made us brand new. So the sin is taken away, the rebellion is ended, and you're made a new creation, whole and complete, not of your own effort, but by the grace of God. And this is the gospel. It's offensive to the prideful because the prideful say, I can fix myself up. 
It's offensive to the wicked because they don't want to be anything but wicked. Like sin is tasty. Give me some more, right? And so that's what we fall prey to. But eventually where we have to come to is this place where we go, I am broken. I am sinful. I'm incomplete. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has dealt with all of that and made me a new creation. Would you like to join me in knowing God? Would you like to join me in being complete? Would you like to join me in serving him? And so we share then, that's our witness. But the people of this period of time, they are happy that they are dead. And then it says, after three and a half days, verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. That'll get your attention. Great fear fell on those who saw them. That probably would happen too. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And so their ministry is finished. God allows them to be killed. Uh, they are left unburied, gloated over by the lost, resurrected, and finally transported to heaven by God's power. This sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry. Jesus has a three-year ministry where he walks on the earth and he shares repentance and he tells them that the nation of Israel that the kingdom of God is at hand and they reject that message and the messenger. They crucify him. They put him to death. Three days later, God raises him up. He spends 40 days where hundreds of eyewitnesses see him resurrected from the dead, shares the message, the message of the gospel as something that he's commissioning to the church that they would go and share it. And then on the, day, on the 40th day, he ascends into heaven in front of his disciples. This is interesting. These people are going to ascend to heaven in front of their enemies. This will be quite the thing to witness. And as you can imagine, this gets their attention. And to add to two people driving, being, being lifted up to heaven, it says, at that moment, a violent earthquake took the place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Now, you could read that as literal. I think the earthquake probably is. The number of people dying, 7,000. You could view that as literal or figurative of people from various backgrounds losing life uh, just before the final judgment of Jesus' return. Um, and then it says, the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe passed. Take note, the third woe is coming. And so the city that kills and rejects God's prophets is judged by God. Uh, this earthquake takes the lives of 7,000 people literally or lots of people figuratively from different backgrounds. Um, and then the survivors are terrified and give glory to God. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they repent and believe. They have what you might call 9-11 faith. Does everybody remember the 9-11, the, the, the towers fell. And that weekend, everybody went to church. Everybody had a flag out. Everybody was like, this is horrible. We need God. And that's what difficult times do to us is they bring us to our knees and we go, we need God. But then what happens is as soon as normalcy returns, people go back to their illusions. They go back to their self-satisfied complacency. And so this may have happened to you in the last couple of years. COVID hits and your whole life gets turned upside down and maybe somebody that you know and love really care about loses their life and you're wondering what's going on. Maybe you got really sick. You know, all these things that took place. Maybe you lost work. Maybe your finances hit, hit the fan. You know, everything just went wrong and you were going, I really need God. But then the stimulus text shows up and then, you know, all the things that would make you feel like the gold and the silver and the things of this earth are satisfying you. 
you get some normalcy and the faith doesn't take root. Now we know this about biblical faith. Authentic biblical faith is always continuing faith. We also know that faith is a gift and it's something that we receive from God as we trust him. But momentary faith that doesn't take root, that's not it. The other thing I would share with you is that that view of God, I only need him when I'm in trouble. It's a very low view of God. It's also a very high view of yourself. Because it assumes there are times that you're not in trouble. It assumes that there are times where you're fine by yourself. That's a bad assumption. Because God is our ever-present help in time of need. And that time of need is always. There's not a point in time during the day where you're like, I'm pretty good without God. You do that, and I guarantee you'll take advantage of somebody else. You'll do something that, that you regret. We're always in need of his presence. We're always in need of his empowerment. The cool thing is, is we always have him. If you're a follower of Jesus, he is always with you. There's not a point in time when the spirit of God will say, I've had enough of your mess, I'm out of here. No, he stays there with us, and he, and he cares about us, and he corrects us, and he drives us towards truth. So it's a very low view of God. It's also a very high view of yourself to think that there are times where you're fine without him. And at the same time, that's very much human nature. And so if you view God as a crutch to fall back on, can I tell you he's so much more? That he's always present? He's always available. He's always looking for relationship and closeness with you. He's always willing to give you the words that you need to speak within your job, within your family, with the, as a parent. He's always there. And so he calls us to trust him and to rely on him, not have momentary fleeting needs. And then this finishes up and it says the second woe has passed. The third one is coming soon. Uh, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, the first woe was demonic oppression. We saw that in chapter 9, verse 12. The second woe is the consequences of unbelief. The third woe is a matter of debate, but we'll wait for next week to dig into that. And so as we close out this passage and uh, get ready for a time of taking the Lord's Supper together, I wonder how you've responded to Jesus' message of repentance and grace. When you're confronted by the truth of your brokenness and your need of God, does that cause you to get calloused? Or do you go, wow, I am in need. Not only am I in need, but I am willing to stop this self-centered, self-empowered pursuit of life. And I'm willing to start trusting him. I'm willing to believe that Jesus' death on the cross has saved me from the consequences of my sin. I'm willing to believe that his resurrection from the dead gives me new life. I'm willing to believe that as a Christian, my purpose is to proclaim this message. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've been a, for a Christian for some time, but you're not exactly sure what's next. And what I would encourage you is, is you just ask yourself this question. Am I growing in my relationship with God? 
Am I spending time in God's word to get to know him? Am I spending time prayer in order to communicate with him? Do I fellowship with a, a group of believers? Do I, do I understand that God has given me spiritual gifts and that within a local body of believers, God has a place for me to serve, to bless other people with the spiritual gifts that he's given me in order that others could be cared for and lifted up? Am I serving? Am I obedient to the Holy Spirit's lead? Are there places where I'm not obedient to the Holy Spirit's lead? I'm perfectly willing to listen to the Holy Spirit when it comes to certain areas of my life. But when it comes to sexuality, I don't really want to listen to him. When it comes to my finances, I don't really want to listen to him. When it comes to, maybe it's something totally different for you. But there's areas where, yes, I will follow the Holy Spirit's lead. And there are other areas where, you know, I've kind of got this on my own. In your growth and transformation, are you moving in the areas of influence that God has given you to share the message of the gospel? Each and every one of us in this room, you're part of a generation, and then you have areas of influence. And so you look at your life and you say, have I done my job as Jesus' witness in the generation that I live in and the areas of influence that he's given me to share the gospel? Am I equipping the next generation of leaders so that they will do the same? How could you take steps in faith this week? Not in your own strength, but in faith this week. And so that's the end of that chapter. And then we see what the two witnesses are there for. We see their ministry that looks a lot like the ministry of a Christian. We see... Uh, their rejection by the world around them and then we see in the end their vindication as God proves that they had life all along. How does that mirror what you hope to see in your life as a follower of Jesus? And so as we move away from that and into communion, um, what I'd like to do is, let me read this passage to you. This is Matthew chapter 26. And so uh, Jesus is, he's, Enter Jerusalem, it's at the end of his ministry. It's the time of the Passover, a Jewish meal that remembered what God had done in taking the Jewish people out of Egypt and slavery. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the door that saved them from death. They're remembering all of those things. And it says in Matthew chapter 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now until the day that I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And from that point, Jesus is betrayed he goes through several trials, and then he's mocked and beaten and crucified. And so take this time, maybe a minute or so here, and let's remember what Jesus has done. His body broken, his blood spilled. Sin and the consequences of it, not on me or you, but on him. The death of a rebel not taken by me, but taken by him. All of our brokenness, taken by Jesus, and then he's raised so that we can be made whole. 
So just real quick here, everybody go ahead, bow your head. Take a minute, remember, reflect, and then maybe ask God if there's anything that needs to be repented of. God, I ask that you would give me your supernatural power to love those around me. I ask that you would give me self-control in the areas that I struggle. I ask that you would help me day in and day out to see you as the one that I need, not the distractions of this life. God, I pray that you would empower me to be a witness that shares your truth with those around me. Even if it's uncomfortable for me or them, that you'd give me the strength to do that. And right now, Father, we want to behold your son. We want to remember who he is and what he's done. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.